Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 100, BGA's top 100 games of all time. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers for helping us bring 100 episodes of board gaming goodness right to you. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. Welcome to the episode, everybody. Not just a regular episode, but the 100th episode of Board Gamers Anonymous. We're so glad to have you join us again here this week. And of course, once again, it's a super special episode. Our top 100 board games of all time, at least so far. But yes, our top 100 board games of all time. And despite 99 episodes of Drew pushing back on the top 10, it's actually happened. We actually have the top 10 of top 10s. All right, Drew, now it's your point where you profess all the doom and gloom that's going to come now. Go ahead, Drew. No, these are, this is not top 10, top 10. This is four top 25s. That's what this is. Okay, so get, get this 10 times 10 out. It's not the all apocalypse. Right. You do the math however you want, Drew. I'm going to do it 10 times 10. I wasn't here for all 100 episodes, so it's not my top 10, top 10. That's true. I guess that's only Chris. It's the only one who's been here the whole time. Well, welcome to my top 10, top 10 of all time. So <laughs> we're glad to have you here. We have a great episode for you. We're going to let you know what we love about these games. It is our episode 100, our top 100 board games of all time. And now BGA's feature review. Okay, so let's talk about BGA's top 100. Anthony has all the details on how we were able to put together this list and still survive the process. Anthony? Yeah, so Daniel volunteered me to uh, build a list for you guys. There you go. Good start. Um, <laughs> I did my part. <laughs> you're, you're the math guy, Anthony. It had to be you. Yeah, yeah. So I sat down uh, in front of the TV one night, and I, I took. we all put together our top 50 lists. And I took those and just basically anything that we all had on our lists jumped towards the top and then got ranked depending on where we each ranked it. So the top 50 in this list or so, maybe 55, is all games that we all picked multiple times over. After that, it became games that only one person picked. And so it was an amalgamation of where we ranked it and Board Game Geek rank and List Maker's prerogative. So <laughs> trying to make it even between the rest of us. But all very good games, all from our, one of our top 50 lists. So none of these games are something that not you know any single one of us wouldn't play and probably we own them all these are the best of the best our favorite games and for the most part once you get to the top of the list we generally agree with a couple of outliers uh, on these ones so it'll be interesting to see kind of how it breaks down and who picks what but yeah it's it's kind of the perfect bga list it's a little bit of everything from everybody all right so with that said let's jump into the list number 100 the speaker stott this outstanding auction economic game and its expansion has been widely considered one of Feld's best games. 
and soon it's going to get a Viking makeover and once again receive the high praise that it really and truly deserves. If you haven't played this game yet, get out and play the Speakerstadt, number 100. Number 99 is Wits and Wagers. Yes, this is probably going to be the only party game on our entire list, but it's a party game that hobby gamers can really get into because even though it's a it's about trivia. It's not about trivia. It's about how well do you know your fellow players and how many people do you think will get the right answer? It's a really great game to get to know each other, get to know the limits of their knowledge and see how good a guesser you are. Wits and Wagers is 99. 98 is Augustus. This Roman Empire themed bingo game is probably the only bingo game I've ever played other than bingo, but it is amazing. It is a strategic and variable game with lots of different things going on. It is definitely with, worth picking up, if for no other reason than get to yell at your friends, Ave Caesar, when you win. That's our number 98, Augustus. Number 97 is Turo. Yes, with a T, T-S-U-R-O. It's a game that every serious gamer should have in your catalog because it's the perfect filler. It's the perfect entry game. The perfect game at the end of the day when you just have a few minutes. It can seat up to eight people, be set up and played quickly. It's a no-brainer. You have to have this game. Suro is 97. Number 96 is Bonanza, which is one of my favorite economic and trading games. Uh, and one of my favorite games to bring out for players of all experience levels. I love that the forced planting means forced planning. Uh, but some people do hate this mechanic, so, you know, your mileage may vary. Still... I think that Bonanza is one of the best games out there and a remarkably efficient game in terms of both the design and play. It is definitely something worth playing, and I would say something worth picking up. So that's our number 96, Bonanza. Coming in at number 95 is Risk, and I know it gets a lot of hate out there, but you've played it, everybody's played it in their youth, and they had a lot of fun playing it, if, especially if you're a frat boy. It's a perfect frat game. The reason why it's still on this list is because it's been reinvented many times over the years to keep it interesting, keep it fresh. And you know what? We wouldn't have Risk Legacy if there weren't Risk. It's an essential game. Number 95, Risk. Number 94, Elysium. Outstanding artwork and vicious set collection mechanic brings together this engaging abstract fantasy game that has godlike replayability. Praise the Olympian gods, our number 94 Elysium. Number 93, Friday. This is a tightly packed deck building game that is brutally difficult, and yet the perfect entry level game for any gamer interested in solo play. It's fast, it's unforgiving, and yet it's still perfectly balanced to provide just the right level of challenge, which you can change however many times you want to play it. That's number 93, Friday. Number 92, Carson City. Worker placement meets Old West shootouts. Yep, you heard that right, partner. Fighting people for the right to place your worker? or to take over someone's plot of land. It's aggressive for a Euro, but it's tight and quick. It's so great that I recently picked up the Kickstarter Big Box Edition. That's our number, 92, Carson City. Number 91, Vikings. The theme may be a bit of an afterthought, but Michael Kiesling's smooth, seamless integration of the Rondell with that tableau building, all playable in about an hour, is a beautifully executed midweight Euro and still a favorite that I like to bring out as often as I can get it out. That is number 91, Vikings. Number 90 is chess. I really don't need to say much about it. 
It is a classic. It will be eternally a classic. And you may hate the million variants that come along with chess, but it's one of the things that keep a lot of people in the game. Even if you hate the, the variants, you're still loving the original because there's endless replayability. An evergreen game, number 90, chess. Our number 89 is Euphoria, Build a Better Dystopia. This is one of the most thematic worker placement games out there today. Our number 89 is Euphoria, Build a Better Dystopia. This is one of the most thematic worker placement games out there today. Its reputation was hurt early on by some imbalances in its initial release, but Euphoria is a truly excellent game now that those imbalances have been corrected through replacement cards and the like. I think it deserves a better reputation than it has, and it's one of my favorite games to play. So won't you help me build a better dystopia? That's our number 89, Euphoria. Number 88 is Kingsburg. It was designed by a pair of Italian designers. And I'm finding so many of my games that I enjoy are Italian in origin. Andrea uh, Chiavesso and Luca Inaco. They've created a great dice placement game, a Euro game where everybody is working on their own economic engine, trying to collect resources. But it is probably one of the, the most competitive worker placement dice games I've ever played because somebody's always going to undercut you. Everybody gets to roll lots of dice. Actually, the person with the lowest dice roll gets to place first, and sometimes they'll take exactly what you want. It's frustrating, but I love, I love going at it, no matter how rough it is. And there is, an, a, there is an expansion to it to forge a realm that is essential, makes the game really enjoyable. You should try it out. Kingsburg is number 88. And at number 87 is another evergreen game, Catan, from 1995. This really started a Euro revolution, and it's everywhere. It's the new monopoly. hundred years from now, um, when hobby gamers talk to newbies about their, their hobby, the newbie is going to say, you mean, is it like Catan? That's how evergreen it is. Everyone's going to be playing it and growing up with it. It's a game changer. You have to, even if you're tired of it, you have to respect the place it still holds in the hobby. Number 87, Catan. Number 86, Shipyard. Shipyard has gone mainly underneath the radar due to its dry look and Euro fiddly design. That said, it's one of the greatest Euros ever designed. Rondells for Days, theme that actually fits the game and makes sense as you build ships, handle multiple secret goals, and actions that give you multiple benefits throughout the game. It's a brilliant game as long as you can manage the chit invasion. Our number 86, Shipyard. Our number 85 is Fresco, an enjoyable Euro game with an interesting theme and important decisions to make each turn. Fresco puts you in the position of a Renaissance painter painting frescoes. Uh, as in life, the most challenging aspect of this game is probably making sure you wake up on time. But it is a fantastically fun game with a lot to do all the way throughout, and you're never going to be left without a moment of making an interesting decision. That's our number 85, Fresco. Number 84, The Princes of Florence. This game has a little bit of everything. From Wolfgang Kramer and the Ulrichs, it captures the urge of the Renaissance families to attract the best artists and scholars and scientists of their age and to look much better than their other families. Combining works, landscapes, social freedoms, everything that was so important at that time, you'll juggle several requirements to compete against those fellow families and come out on top. It's fun every time. It's a little bit different every time. It is a great midweight Euro and one of my favorites. 
Princes of Florence, number 84. Number 83 is Forbidden Desert from Matt Laycock. It's one of several games on this list that is a great trend in gaming where you take a really, really good game, in this case, Forbidden Island, and turn around and make it even better. Add some mechanisms that really up the strategy and up the interest level. Forbidden Desert is a great advancement on Forbidden Island, and yet it's still an accessible gateway game. Number 83, Forbidden Desert. Number 82, Mombasa. Expand companies, pick up special abilities, trade resources, but be careful where you lay your cards because they will be part of your future hands. Four stock tracks that offer special abilities when you reach check marks and a separate double track to allow for resource collection all combined in this modern-day classic Euro. It's brilliant in every way, and it gets people truly excited. Our number 82, Mombasa. Number 81, Rococo. Drafting from your deck of cards, picking up new cards and material at a reduced rate, the less that the choices are available, coupled with quality artwork and engaging gameplay, makes this dressmaking game an amazing medium weight to lightweight Euro that you're truly going to enjoy. Number 81, Rococo. Number 80, Mysterium. Dixit meets Clue. Do you really need to hear any more? Okay, one player gets to be the ghost and gives Dixit dream cards to the psychics, which is brilliant. Then the players try to interpret the dreams and try to figure out the case. It's one of those, damn, why didn't I think about it type of games. Our number 80, Mysterium. Number 79, Imperial. Take over the world. And just like any good world domination strategy, it looks like it's going to be done by force, where in fact it's done by the oligarchy. Buy the most stocks in a country and take control of the military, production, and expansion. Brilliant fun, but if you're going to fight the oligarchy in real life, vote for Bernie Sanders 2016. That's our number 79 game, Imperial. Number 78 is Acquire. It's the signature game from the hobby's signature designer, Sid Saxon. There should be a Hall of Fame somewhere where he is in. Sid Saxon created a game that gives you the perfect answer when you, the hobby gamer, are trying to explain to the new person, is it like Monopoly? Well, with Acquire, you can say, yeah, yeah, it sort of is. You should try it. And when the newer casual player tries Acquire, they're going to be hooked and forget all about Monopoly. It's the perfect next step game to keep in your collection. Acquire, number 78. Number 77 is Bruges from Stefan Feld complex and fiddly. So why do we keep coming back to it? Because it has a nice mix of mechanisms using dice to set prices, um, drafting cards, uh, buying cards. It's one of these things where you can use a card for seven different things. Gives you a lot of constant choices to make. Keeps you involved right up to the end, and you don't mind having to put all the pieces back in the box. Number 77 is Bruges. And number 76 is Carcassonne. Carcassonne is a game that's been around in many different expansions and many different versions for a number of years, created in 2000 by Klaus Jürgen Reda. What keeps Carcassonne alive is a number of interesting expansions that send it off in the different directions. My favorite happens to be South Seas Carcassonne. I think it's the best in the Carcassonne family. A great series of games. Carcassonne is number 76. Our number 75 is Betrayal at the House on the Hill. 
this was the crater game on my shelf for a long time there. And Betrayal of the House on the Hill just has enormous replayability with 50 distinct in-game scenarios determined by player actions and the board outcomes. It is also coupled with an emergent player-generated map, which makes Betrayal one of the most replayable games out there. It is not likely you will ever run to the same game twice. It is also an enormously effective game at eliciting its classic horror theme. Not only in the creepy crawly enemies that you're going to be facing, but it presents an unpredictable and dangerous world full of unknown horrors and strange relics, which really brings you into that theme. So that's our number 75, Betrayal at the House on the Hill. Number 74, Lewis and Clark. Whether you like the Sacagawea card or not, Lewis and Clark offers a perfect combination of deck building, worker placement, and resource management as you work your way down the river toward the coast. At its core, it's a race game with the dual-use nature of the cards forcing economization and careful planning for when you're going to make your big move. It's very tight, it's very tense, and it's a whole lot of fun. That is number 74, Lewis and Clark. Number 73 is Viticulture from Jamie Stegmeier and Alan Stone. Now, Stonemeyer Games is a well-known young publishing company. Uh, they make great games, and Jamie is a fantastic marketer. But this is not a product of marketing. This is truly a solid game, one of the best blendings of theme with gameplay that you'll find out there. Plus, how many winemaking games are there anyway? It's a great one to try out. Once you, once you play it, you'll love it. Number 73, Viticulture. Number 72, Palaces of Carrera. There is something so exciting and, and intense about watching the market for bricks tick down as you try to build up your cities and pick up one of the many paths to victory. It's an economic euro that scratches that medium-weight euro itch in the most friendly way possible. If it was in print in the U.S., I would buy two copies just to have a backup. Our number 72, The Palaces of Carrera. Number 71, Glory to Rome. I come not to bury my cards in Glory to Rome, but to pick them up later for resources to be built into grand buildings multiple use cards, and also multiple paths to victory, so much so that your head will spin. I am still waiting for the ultimate reprint of this game, but no matter how it looks or what version you buy, Motanai, you'll adore Glory to Rome, our number 71. Number 70, Alien Frontiers, designed by Tori Neiman. Now, I was going to say that he was a one-hit wonder, but he also created Pay Dirt, another solid game. But it's Alien Frontiers that introduced me to the genre of dice placement games. And it's a fascinating uh, introduction to that. Still a sentimental favorite and one I really look forward to every time it hits the table. Alien Frontiers is number 70. Number 69, Amon Ray. Who doesn't like a good auction to control vast plots of land on the Nile? Well, wait, there's more. Not only can you build these great lands up and be able to purchase pyramids and manage secret goals you get to do so much more what you're not happy with the lands not to worry because later in the game the board gets wiped free of control but the pyramids stay so go at it again great game and the auction mechanic is amazing and recently it was announced it's going to get a reprint our number 69 game amen ray number 68 empires age of discovery you might know it as Age of Empires 3 or just Empires Age of Discovery, the more recent re-release via Kickstarter. Either way, it's one of the first and still greatest worker placement games out there. 
take on the role of a colonial power. You're seeking fame, glory, riches, going to do all sorts of things over the course of three ages from expeditions of discovery to colonizing new regions, expanding your merchant fleet, building capital buildings that give you lots of bonuses and all sorts of national advantages, developing your economy. The list goes on and on and on. And yes, there is war. Uh, Empire's Age of Discovery is one of the better worker placement games out there and one of the better civ building games out there. Number 68, Empire's Age of Discovery. At number 67 is Crokinole. What? You might ask, Crokinole? You've never heard of it? You'll never see it in stores. It's one of those elusive games, but yet most of us have played it in our childhood. It's also called Carom. Yes, my family had a Carom board when I was growing up. It's a great little flicking game. You're trying to get your pieces in the middle of the, the circular board and knock the other people out. It's just a very simple, basic, fun family game. Crokinole is number 67. Number 66, Sentinels of the Multiverse. The artwork is passable at best. The card quality isn't great. And yet, this game is amazing fun. It's engaging. And seriously, it's the best superhero game out there. Beware your completionist disorder. There is so much to buy. Our number 66 game, Sentinels of the Multiverse. Number 65, Paperback. A self-published sensation from Tim Fowers, Paperback combines two things I personally love, deck-building games and word games. The result is a quick, clever, infinitely replayable experience in which you're going to collect letters with which you buy completed books for victory points and try to produce the longest word. It's a whole lot of fun, and everybody gets in on it very quick to teach. Number 65, Paperback. Number 64 is Alchemists, an entertaining combination of worker placement and deduction. Alchemist is a uniquely complex game and one of the few deduction games that's really going to burn your brain. The complexity of the game does make it a little bit hard to teach, but it is worth the investment, both in time and money, once gameplay begins in earnest. Expect a slow start, but a wonderfully complex finish. And this, our number 64, Alchemists. Our number 63 game, a Game of Thrones, the board game, second edition. Game of Thrones, the board game, is the game that made theming in a Euro game not only acceptable, but brilliant. You benefit greatly by understanding the family's position and their strengths from the books and the TV show. It really does theming in a way that no other game does. Not to mention the sudden but inevitable betrayal. Our number 63 game, a Game of Thrones, the board game, second edition. Number 62, Russian Railroads. Russian Railroads is a point machine. With endless ways to score points through the snowballing mechanics and the cutthroat nature of a limited resource worker placement game, each play is a little bit different. And with the new expansion, German Railroads, Russian Railroads has solved any little problems it might have had, in my opinion, and is now one of the best modern worker placement games on the market today. It's fun. It's got a cute theme. There's a lot going for it, plus a great solo mode. Number 62, Russian Railroads. Number 61, Star Wars X-Wing Miniatures Game. Resurrecting a popular yet obscure flight path system, Star Wars X-Wing Miniatures puts you in the role of a Star Wars Universe fighter pilot for either the Empire or Rebellion. There are several spin-offs from other companies if Star Wars isn't your theme, but X-Wing is still the original and the most popular, and the models are far and away some of the best production quality miniatures in board gaming. Love this game, and there's so many great expansions coming out for it, and you know that the new movies are coming soon. Number 61, Star Wars X-Wing Miniature Game. Number 60, Kalos. 
arguably the one that started all the great Euro placement games. If you know hobby board gaming, you know our grumbly royal that we love so much from the cover. Turn resources into points, but with an opportunity to build resource buildings on a road that will determine when actions take place and is also the timer for the game. So much crunchy Euro goodness that you will in fact mess up the order of actions and you will want to flip the table and yet still want to play again. I love this game. Our number 60 game, Kalis. Number 59, Lords of Waterdeep. It may not be the heaviest or most thematic worker placement game on the list, but it is one of the most accessible. And with a theme, yes, theme, that captures attention even from non-Euro players, and it might just be the cover, but it really works, it's seamless gameplay experience that goes with it, and a pair of expansions that add considerable depth. It's a top pick for any game night, regardless of the group. Gotta love Lords of Waterdeep, number 59. Number 58 is Twilight Struggle by Ananda Gupta and Jason Matthews. Until recently, it was the number one game ranked on Board Game Geek. Why? I don't really know. It's only a two-player game. It plays three hours or more, and yet it's so unique and so well-crafted that it started an entire genre of games. It's also very educational. Worth your while to learn and play. Twilight Struggle is 58. Number 57 is El Grande, another early Euro game. In fact, it comes from the same year that Catan was released, 1995, and yet Catan gets all the glory. El Grande, though, is a great example of an area control game that also has, that also has a really cool conflict resolution mechanism where all the players have the same power cards. It's when you choose to use them that will influence how the game progresses. You have a lot of control over what happens in this great area control game. El Grande is number 57. Number 56, Dominant Species. No game more perfectly captures the essence of its title than Dominant Species. This game is brutal. Whether you're the mammals or the fast-spawning insects, this game forces you to take action, pushing and striving and clawing your way to knock your neighbors out. Build the largest, most active species, and if you can survive to the end, big if, you'll come away the winner. That's number 56, Dominant Species. Number 55, Star Wars Imperial Assault. This is the second Star Wars game on the list, and there is no game that more perfectly captures the excitement, feel, and speed of that Star Wars universe than this one. From epic campaign modes that bring on classic characters to fight alongside all the colorful newcomers in this game, to the cutthroat one-on-one of the skirmish mode, Imperial Assault has more game per square inch than any release in recent memory. It takes what Descent does well and does it extremely well. That is number 55, Star Wars Imperial Assault. Number 54 is a pretty unique game that also launched a a genre, Stratomatic Baseball. It was designed in 1962 by Hal Richman. It's it's a a great favorite of stat geeks, statistic geeks, and they are still geeks, so it's worth checking out. In fact, this is a role-playing game a generation ahead of Dungeons & Dragons. Every character in the game has their own card, with variable results, the dice uh, resolve what happens in the game, and it also has that same magic feel of drafting a team and putting it on the field head-to-head with someone else. It's a great classic game. Stratomatic Baseball is number 54. Our number 53 is Tiny Epic Kingdoms. Enormous replayability and flexibility in a tiny epic package. Tiny Epic Kingdoms is a short, compact game with no waste whatsoever. 
It is a remarkably efficient game that has given me some of my favorite gameplay experiences of all time in a quick and easy package. One of my biggest things about games is that I get frustrated when there's excess or waste, and there is none of that here. Tiny Epic Kingdoms is a great time in a small package. That's our number 53, Tiny Epic Kingdoms. Our number 52 is Grabwell, Escape from the Ninth Dimension. This is the single best racing game on the market, with a complex sort of tactical play that forces you to constantly reevaluate the board and your resources to find your way back home. The intense interactivity between player choices makes this a game that requires you to keep track not only of your own plans and resources, but to try and predict those of everyone else on the board if you are going to make it out of there alive. You guys have heard me rant and rave about how much I love this game for years now, and I still love it just as much. That's our number 52, Gravwell, Escape from the Ninth Dimension. At number 51 is Can't Stop. Our second game on this list from Sid Saxon, who scores again with a very, very simple dice game that's quick and addictive. It's the kind of game that you can bring out, play with your children of all ages. It's a great warm-up game that you need to have in your collection. Can't stop at number 51. Number 50 is Las Vegas. Did I mention dice game? Well, this has a lot of dice. Each player starts with eight dice. Forget about the theme. It is meaningless. This is a great dice placement game that is heavy on tactical skill, on knowing exactly where to place your dice so that you can bump people out of, of the six spots on the board, the highest money. Very fun game. It's actually a perfect tournament game, too. You can have a lot of fun playing it three, four times in a row. Las Vegas is number 50. Number 49 is Spirium. This quirky little Euro is lightweight, inexpensive, and packed full of engaging gameplay. With worker placement and displacement mechanic, and the ability to take actions at your own pace, Spirium offers players the opportunity to build an engine that suits their style of play, moving ahead of everybody to get that action you really need, or staying back to get as much off the board as you can. There's bidding, pace management, and a sheer volume of meeples that'll make you smile. This is the kind of game that really fits in well at most tables. That is number 49, Spirium. Number 48 is Survive, Escape from Atlantis. Now, we've always been warned about cutthroat games and how they can ruin friendships and how they can just take so much time and be so tense and uh, really hard on us physically. But Survive Escape from Atlantis is a cutthroat game that is so much fun to play, you'll end up with greater vibes and greater good feelings for your fellow players, especially it's got these cute little animal miniatures that you can have fun with. Survive Escape from Atlantis, number 48. Number 47 is the great white whale of board games. Hard to find, you're always looking for it, you wanna play it at least once in your life, it's a bucket list game, D-Mocker. From 1986, the designer Carl Heinz Schmiel. There's nothing glorious about the game. It's a four hour game where you're trying to earn votes to get your people elected to the German legislature. Yeah, it's not a sexy game at all, but it's very heavy, very immersive, one of the best heavy games. If you can find it, hold on to it. Don't let it go. Bring it out once in a while. Demacher, 47. Our number 46, Bora Bora. Bora Bora offers Feld at his crunchy Euro best. It provides dice rolling to determine worker placement and action selection with god cards that offer special abilities. 
You throw in set collection and island expansion, and you have a great, super colorful Euro that is worth your table space. Point Salads rule. Our number 46, Bora Bora. Number 45, Imperial Settlers. Ignacy Trevichek's reimagining of the 51st state is more colorful, better balanced, and more engaging in pretty much every way. It has asymmetrical factions, neutral card drafting, customizable tableau building, and huge, huge piles of tokens and chits and all sorts of stuff that you're going to be piling up every turn. It perfectly straddles that line between multiplayer, solitaire, civ builder, and cutthroat attack your neighbor Euro. Yes, I said cutthroat attack your neighbor Euro. It does happen. And the solo mode is one of my favorites in a midweight Euro. This is a great one. I love bringing it out every time, and I still play it almost every weekend with my son on the solo mode. That is number 45, Imperial Settlers. Number 44, Goa. The spice must flow. And being that Dune is not on the list, I have to be talking about Goa. The cover of Goa features the other great Euro gentleman that everyone knows and loves. You have auctions that are set up by strategic tile selection in this medium-weight, appealing Euro that you will quickly fall in love with. The second edition does fix some minor issues and throw in stickers, but either way, you are going to love our number 44, Goa. Number 43 is Race for the Galaxy by Thomas Lehman. Remember how I said that the trend in gaming today is to take a really, really good game and make it better? Well, I don't think you can make Race for the Galaxy better, and I don't know why it's ranked below Roll for the Galaxy. That's for another time. But this is a great game that people pick up intuitively. Don't even bother explaining the game. It's too difficult. As soon as people sit down to play this game, you can see the, the lights going on in their eyes. They're figuring it out. They're getting it. It's a great game for discovering mechanisms and discovering uh, engine building. It's fun. Everyone keeps coming back to it. And it really does play quickly. Race for the Galaxy is number 43. Our number 42 is Dead of Winter, a crossroads game. This is the only game to have ever done zombies and zombie survival right, and one of the most engaging games out there, at least that I've ever played. It is an instant classic and a lifelong favorite due to its well-developed theme, the engrossing narrative twists enabled by the Crossroads system, and probably the most engaging trader system in board gaming to date. That's our number 42, Dead of Winter. Our number 41 is Smash Up a clever system that is adaptable to almost any theme and manages to benefit from bizarre thematic combinations rather than suffer from them. Where else could you see your ghost aliens battling the zombie robots? It's an easy game to teach, appropriate for almost any crowd. Uh, and Smash Up is a game that is just going to stay around and stay relevant for a long time now, if for no other reason than that they can just slap any theme they want on cards. And what do you know? There's an expansion. That's our number 41, Smash Up. Number 40 is Citadels by Bruno Faduti. Faduti. It's an Italian name, but he's French. It's a great introductory game, a gateway game, that introduces players to set collection and especially variable player powers. Everybody takes turns choosing a particular power for that particular round. There's a lot of strategy involved, a lot of bluffing, um, trying to outguess everybody else. It comes in a little box so you can carry it with you everywhere, introduce people to it, take it to weddings, and when the reception gets boring, bring it out. Citadels is our number 40 game. Number 39 is Glenmore. 
From gathering the right resources to triggering the right actions from your tiles, Glenmore gets just about everything right in terms of pace and feel. The result is very quick, resource tight, and the experience is fun and doesn't overstay its welcome. It's another great mid-weight Euro that has a lot going for it. Unfortunately, not available right now, right now in the U.S., but there are a lot of options in terms of finding a copy. Glenmore, number 39. Number 38 is Alhambra. In its most basic form, Alhambra is relaxing, easy to teach, tableau building. But for serious gamers, it can become a tense game of careful positioning, resource management, and action planning. Combined with all the mini expansions that are available to tweak the gameplay in as many ways as you want, the game can be played over and over again and never quite be the same. This one hits the table all the time in my house. Another great favorite, number 38, Alhambra. Our number 37 is XCOM, the board game. XCOM is a great cooperative game that manages to evoke the attitude and theme of the video game from which it draws uh, its inspiration with surprising accuracy. Uh, the timer is a fickle and brutal mistress, and this keeps a feeling of pressure on you at all times, which I love. Be warned that if you don't like playing with the pressure on and the clock counting down, this is not the game for you. But if you're ready to save humanity from the alien threat, well then, we are a go, Commander. That's XCOM, the board game. Our number 36, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico will always be the number one BGG game in my heart. The quintessential, a minute to learn and a lifetime to master game. Trade goods, select a role, and pick up special buildings that allow your machine to truly hum. A classic that has stood the test of time. Brilliant. Our number 36, Puerto Rico. Number 35, the castles of Mad King Ludwig. Building a castle has never been more economic and yet colorful fun. Yes, fun. Be the master builder and set the prices of rooms, and then everyone does their best to go all suburbia with their creation. It's best with the expansion secrets, so go ahead and go mad. Our number 35, the castles of Mad King Ludwig. Number 34, Agricola. There's often a lot of talk about what makes a game heavy, and while there are a lot of measures, I find it's in how brilliant or damn foolish a game can make you feel 10 moves later. You either love Agricola or you hate it, but it's the best thematic Euro game out there. So feed your people good games like Agricola and be sure to pick up the Farmers of the Moor expansion. Our number 34 game, Agricola. Our number 33, St. Petersburg. One of my first Euro loves. It offers multiple stages, engaging card selection, and economic engine building at its best. Intelligent design, a true classic. The second edition adds more goodness, but both versions are a must-have. You gotta pick it up. Our number 33 game, St. Petersburg. Our number 32 is Nevermore. As you'd expect of a game from Smirk and Dagger, Nevermore is a brutal card-drafting game with a set collection mechanic that gives you plenty of chances to stab your friends in the back. Or front. Or side. Or turn them into a raven and then stab them in the back. You get the idea. Offering eliminated players a chance to claw their way back into the game by taking someone else and shoving them into their tombstone, into their grave, rather, makes this game even more engaging, as the friends you brought down might escape their gruesome fate by having you dragged down in their place. That's our number 32, Nevermore. Our number 31 is Tragedy Looper. 
With a good Game Master, Tragedy Looper is probably the best pure deduction game on the market, and one of the few where you get the feeling the game is just outsmarting you, and that's because it is. It is a truly unique and excellent game with a deeply evocative theme. Tragedy Looper does its best when everyone's fresh and ready to go, so maybe not best for the kind of midnight playthrough we tried to do a night after Gen Con, but it is an absolutely amazing game, and really my favorite deduction game on the market. That's our number 31, Tragedy Looper. Number 30, A Game of Thrones, the card game. The game that redefined how expandable card games could be played both casually and competitively. It's got incredibly thematic decks, hundreds of cards from the Game of Thrones universe, and tense, incredibly cutthroat sessions with up to four players. This living card game, now in the second edition, is a cut, <laughs> get it, cut above the rest. That is number 30, A Game of Thrones, the card game. Our number 29, San Juan. Cards as resources and buildings. Brilliant! Easy to get into, and it's even fun for hardcore gamers. The second edition is even a bit better, if that's possible. It was impossible to get before, but now you can pick it up. That's our number 29 game, San Juan. Our number 28 is Between Two Cities, a deceptively simple tile-placing mechanic gives this game a whole lot of complexity in play. This game scales easily between its minimum three and maximum seven numbers with almost no lag in game time. And the need to keep track of which player has the highest low score requires a sort of board awareness that goes beyond what's required from even much more apparently complex games. This is one of those games that's going to sneak up on you and really surprise you with how much game there is to it. That's our number 28, Between Two Cities. Number 27, The Voyages of Marco Polo. No game has more perfectly captured the joy of worker placement for me with a bit of variability than The Voyages of Marco Polo. Combining dice allocation, worker placement, and resource management with a little bit of a race element in a perfectly blended package, this game has exceptional replayability. And those downright game-breaking player powers make it even more fun to try again and again to see what happens next. Number 27, The Voyages of Marco Polo. Number 26, Rune Wars. Rune Wars is the epic fantasy war game. The map is modular. The races are specialized with unique units and powers. Not to mention you have heroes questing for special abilities. You also have card slash action selection that allows you to do all the 4x fun that you want to do over multiple seasons. It's hard to find, but there's nothing like it. You get everything you're looking for and more in this game. No matter how much fun it is to dominate the realm, you win by runes, not domination. Our number 26 game, Rune Wars. Number 25, Time Stories. This game did what no other board game has done for me before. It pulled me into a story that depended on my input to be completed. It was like a well-written adventure video game or a brilliantly DM'd RPG. I felt a part of the experience at every step and kept playing until I was able to finish the quest. The expansions and new adventures that they bring add even more depth and build out what is an incredibly engaging science fiction premise across multiple worlds. I am extremely excited for some of these and cannot wait to sit down with another session of Time Stories. Number 25, Time Stories. Number 24, Battle Lore, 2nd Edition. This is another game that bore down to the core of what makes the original so good in Richard Borg's Command and Color system and stripped away the rest, making it streamlined, quick, easy for people to pick up. 
The result is still extremely tense and incredibly satisfying as a one-on-one battle game, offering plenty of options, three factions currently, multiple armies for each faction, quick setup with that point system, and tons of other mechanics involved. Hopefully many more expansions to come for this one. Number 24, Battle Lore, 2nd Edition. Number 23, Concordia. Trading in the Mediterranean has never been more sleek or engaging. Play personality cards to expand your economic outreach, and then purchase new cards with better abilities. At the end of the game, the number of personality cards act as a multiplier to your buildings and resources that you've been building up throughout the game. It's a smart, sleek game, and every time I finish a game, I really want to get up and applaud it. Our number 23 game, Concordia. At number 22 is Pandemic from Matt Laycock. Pandemic is a game everybody has played at one point or another. It fits so many different uh, circumstances, has so many different types of gameplay. It's one of those games like Risk and like Chess and many others that you can just keep creating more expansions and more ways to play. Uh, Now we have Pandemic Legacy. In the upcoming year, we're going to have Pandemic Cthulhu. There's always a great way to reinvent the game and keep it exciting. It's an evergreen. It's Pandemic at number 22. Number 21 is Zolkan the Mayan Calendar. For extra credit, spell this correctly, because I can never. (laughs) Really hard, but it really is a well-themed game from two Italian designers, Simon Luciani and Daniel Tassini. It wins the Oscar for best use of rondelles in a board game. Not only does it have a great large wheel that tracks the passing of time, but it's connected to other wheels, which advance your workers to get better better resources the longer you stay on them. So it's a timing game. And there's so many different ways to score points, so many different ways to win. Infinite replayability because it's so dense and complex. Zolkin, the Mayan calendar, is number 21. Our number 20 is Takedo. A game whose challenge is to have just the best possible time while traveling down the famous pilgrim's path in Japan of the same name. Takedo is just a good time. It may not be the most complex or competitive game on the market, but it is hard to play a round of Takedo without wanting to plan a road trip of your own. Yes, it's it's the perfect zen game, and it also makes a great way to end the evening. It's relaxing and peaceful and helps you de-stress from a really tense gaming session. It fits just the right niche in your gaming collection. And did I mention that it's an Italian designer, Antoine Bauza? Number 20, Takedo. Our number 19 game is Terra Mystica. It took me only a single play to decide that I absolutely had to have this game, and I immediately understood why it ranked so highly on Board Game Geek for so long. It is a great area control game, and is only slowed down by a few possibly overcomplicated mechanics that would be hard to pick up if you were a truly new player. But if you've played pretty much anything, it shouldn't be too challenging to pick this one up. It is a fantastic game with a great deal of strategic flexibility, uh, and is well worth the investment of purchasing and learning, so long as you don't mistake it for a gateway game. Yeah, I have yet to win a single game of Terra Mystica, and nonetheless, I cannot get enough of this one. Uh, The variability of each race is a challenge within the greater challenge of all the stuff going on here. And with so many options, so many different ways to play, and a series of possibilities that make this one probably one of the most talked about Euros, and definitely one of the more analyzed ones out there right now, it's sure to stay on my shelf for a long time to come. That is Terra Mystica, number 19. Number 18, Lord of the Rings, the card game. 
So no single game on my shelf right now has been played, customized, decked out, or poured over more than this one. The deck-building component, the epic stories told through each of these quests, and the ridiculously intense challenge sometimes of defeating a particularly tough set of objectives, either alone, as is often the case for me, or with a friend, is incredibly addictive, especially if you love the Lord of the Rings universe. Have to love Lord of the Rings, the card game. Everything about this game is beautiful. Gameplay, artwork, mechanics, they are all works of art. In a world of outstanding Fantasy Flight LCGs, Lord of the Rings finds a way to be the one that rules them all. Our number 18 game, Lord of the Rings Card Game. At number 17 is Power Grid from German designer Friedemann Fries. He usually likes to create games that start with the letter F. Well, in German, Power Grid is Funkenschlag. And no matter how you play it, it's a really engaging resource management and network building game. Think Ticket to Ride, but without trains. Instead, it's electric plants. And you just can't sit back on this energy-producing engine you've created. You have to continually upgrade by outbidding and outbluffing your other players, as well as saving enough money for resources and for expanding your network throughout the country. Continual challenges. It never lets up. You never get bored with Power Grid. Yeah, you really can't. It's a puzzle, a really long, carefully balanced multiplayer puzzle, but definitely a puzzle. And it pulls me in every time right from the start. That first auction, I'm in. From knowing when to expand and opt for larger power plants to how much money to keep in reserve and hide from other players, it really tasks you with creating a power grid while accounting for what everybody else is doing at all times. The more players, the more difficult it becomes to keep track. And with all those different maps to choose from, there is a ton of game here. One of my favorites, Power Grid, number 17. Number 16, Arcadia Quest. So no game right now has taken more money out of my pocket in the last year uh, than Arcadia Quest. Sorry, Imperial Assault. It was very close, but Colmini uh, or not pulled it out with our last couple of Kickstarters. Boiling down the very essence of the dungeon crawl with a clever set of ways to interact with fellow players. It is fast, it is engaging, and it is incredible to look at. And I love to paint those little guys. Arcadia Quest is a blast. Yeah, this game is like the narcotic version of a dungeon crawl. It's so amazingly concentrated and so amazingly charismatic and fun with these little figurines you're moving around and they're all bright colors. And you've got all these fights to be a part of and a really interesting campaign mode. This is why Arcadia Quest is our number 16. Our number 15 is Flashpoint. Flashpoint is probably one of the best games out there for introducing new players to the hobby. And it scales smoothly from gateway game easy to dear lord, everything is on fire hard. By teaching this game to your friends, you are guaranteeing they can have a smooth and easy transition from first-time gamer to having their own fiscally irresponsible investment in the hobby. Flashpoint is nice in that it also remains engaging at each difficulty level, even for more experienced players. And it's just a great co-op game for any environment. Yeah, Flashpoint by Kevin Lansing makes a great introductory game to people who just don't want to be thinking about difficult hobby strategy games. It's really about the theme. You should be able to sell the theme. And the game, once you get into it, starts selling itself. There are very few games out there that emotionally engage you as much as Flashpoint. Because these aren't just little cardboard pieces or cardboard chits that you're trying to rescue. You know deep down that these are real human people that need rescuing, need saving. So, so there's no such thing as acceptable losses in this game. You want to try and save every single person. 
and it keeps that tension up throughout the game. Very effective. Flashpoint is number 15. Our number 14 is Love Letter. I played this game once a few years back with a girl I liked, and now she's my wife. Coincidence? Probably. But Love Letter is still an unreasonably enjoyable game considering its simplicity, how small it is, and how little it costs. It might be the single most efficient game in terms of cost and complexity per hour of enjoyment out there. And it's hard to imagine what a better pocket game would be, and is fully capable of punching up a few weight classes. Love Letter should be on everyone's shelf, and who knows, it might just get you married. I, I'm not going to argue with that last point. I am going to argue with keeping it on your shelf. This is a game that's not going to spend much time gathering dust. You're going to be bringing it down. In fact, you'll probably be putting it in your pocket and taking it with you. It's a great introductory game because there are now so many skins. Hobby gamers are probably tired of seeing all the new versions, but they're a great way to draw people into the game. You like Batman? Hey, we got one for you. You like Adventure Time? Got one for you. And then once the graphics draw them in, the gameplay is so simple and addictive that they stay in and see what else you have in your game shelf. Love Letter, a perfect game to carry with you everywhere. It's number 14. Number 13 is King of New York by Richard Garfield. It is, yes, another one of those games that was built upon a really good game to begin with, King of Tokyo. But King of New York takes what was a great tactical game with a simple Yahtzee mechanic and creates different levels of strategy. Now it becomes where do you go and how long do you stay and what, and what you do in the various locations that you're in as you're stomping around New York. And it continues to ratchet up. It's not just a simple gain hearts and gain points. There are a lot of things now endangering you you have to watch out for. It takes a tactical game and makes it strategic. Yeah, no, I, and King of Tokyo is one of my favorite games. Uh, I still play it frequently. I play it just the other night. I played it at the game night with my friends. And I played it with my son over the last weekend, and it's good in almost all of those settings. But King of New York takes what I like about King of Tokyo and ratchets it up so that I can play it more intensely and I can be more involved and be more engaged and more active in it. And that alone makes it the better game, in my opinion. King of New York is one of my favorites, and there's just not a whole lot more you can add to it except you know those upgrades and power-ups that hopefully are coming down the line here soon. So that is King of New York, number 13. Number 12, Kemet. Kemet is a tactical area control game in the Room War style, which you pick up special powers that truly makes your race asymmetrical. With the exception of the board, it's a truly beautiful game and loved by Euro and Ameritrash gamers alike. And of course, the D4s are playable pyramids in the game. Outrageous. Yeah, Kemet is just a great game all around. And the flexibility with the tableaus you can build and the kinds of strategies they encourage, it's just fantastic. It's hard to beat, uh, especially given the way that those playable pyramids are intricately connected to the development of these powers. Kimmet is an absolutely wonderful game, and this is why Kimmet is our number 12. Number 11, Small World. Area control done best. You choose a race with a random power, expand, conquer, and then retire them so you can choose a new one. Wash, rinse, and repeat. It's cartoony but professionally done with amazing quality. Days of Wonder created a masterpiece here with much love to its in-decline Vinci predecessor. Small World is one of those games that I bought very early on in my hobby career. 
and have held on to and continues to hold on to me. It's a game that is still fun after all these hundreds of games I've played since it and one that I still like to come back to. And that says something about a game. Coupled with the enormously flexible generation of powers, the fun and active area control aspect of this game makes it one of the best, most replayable games out there. And that's why our number 11 is Small World. Our number 10 is Dominaire, designed by Jim Pinto. It is the quintessential game of variable player powers. There are dozens of character cards that you're drafting throughout the game. And each of those cards, each of those characters has an escalating series of powers that come into play as the game progresses. And it also has a wonderful catch-up mechanic where the stronger that your team is, the more of a target you are and the more it's pulling you back down to normal. It's like Revolution, a very familiar game to a lot of people, but on steroids takes it to a whole other level. It's essentially a variable player power game welded to an area control game, and it balances both beautifully. Dominaire may have gotten lost in the Tempest universe, but it is brilliant through and through. Playing these interesting and dynamic characters that have effects that only trigger at certain times and kind of cascade, depending on how you put them together, is a fun game that's going to bring people to the table again and again. Drew and I love this game, and it's a shame that more people haven't picked this game up. But if you're looking for a deep and rich board gaming experience in that Tempest universe, using those love letter characters and more, you got to check out our number 10 Dominaire. Our number nine game is Mice and Mystics. Redwall with magic and a little bit more violence, Mice and Mystics is one of the most engaging narrative campaign games on the market right now. The storybook theme might seem silly at first, but it pulled me in way quicker than I might care to confess as a grown man. It brings you back to the days of daydreaming as a child after being read a fairy tale. Mice and Mystics is absolutely worth picking up and playing through over and over again. Yeah, it's easy to write this one off as a game just for families or just for kids. But beneath that cute veneer is a deep, rich story, engaging mechanics, all backing it up. Uh, I've pulled this out with heavy gamers. I've pulled this out with my family. Everybody loves it. From saving a fellow mouse from almost certain peril to investigating the treetops, there are dozens of adventures to be had in this universe. And I am still working my way through all of them, but it is a blast to play. Cannot get enough of Mice and Mystics. That is why it is our number nine game. Number eight, The Castles of Burgundy. Arguably one of Stefan Feld's best games. Uh, while the packaging isn't much to look at, the pieces feel a little cheap. There is a lot more depth here than the staunchest of gamer may realize. Uh, with variable boards that scale in difficulty, dice mechanics that ensure some randomness, and several ways to mitigate factors for yourself, plus one of the more um, ridiculous scoring mechanics of any Feld game. Seriously, the scores can get pretty high here with some crazy point solidness. This is still a brilliant yet accessible game. It was an instant classic when published, still a favorite, and it's relatively easy to find and inexpensive, so well worth picking up if you're looking for your first Feld. I've spoken often about my disdain for the lack of effort put into production in games over these last hundred episodes, and the Castles of Burgundy is no different. And yet, the game offers such profound responsiveness in its point saladness that you always feel a part of the flow and as the game goes on, you really truly do feel an urgency throughout the gameplay to pick up that ugly tile as if your life depends on it. I love the crunch of this salad and the mastery of Feld's craftsmanship. It is truly beautiful. That is our number eight game, The Castles of Burgundy. 
Number seven, Suburbia. It's a testament to the strength of Ted Elsbach's design here that both this game and the Castles of Mad King Ludwig made the list. But for me, Suburbia will always be the favorite game on my shelf. You can go back to our Suburbia versus Mad King episode to hear why. But to put it simply, it's a sublime hex tile laying mechanic combined with that push and pull of the population track as you try to manage your reputation, all the different tiles, how they all interact with each other, plus an iOS app that absolutely destroys me routinely on the challenge mode. I love Suburbia. It's one of my favorite in general games, especially in terms of city building. Gotta love Suburbia. Yeah, I agree. If you grew up playing SimCity, you owe it to yourself to sit down with Suburbia. It's tableau building at its best, and it's so tight you feel a sense of great accomplishment when you hit those final goals. That's why Suburbia is our number seven game. Number six, War of the Ring, second edition. There is no game more epic, more thematic, more evocative of a classic fictional story, and more likely to anger Drew than War of the (laughs) Ring. Pitting the free peoples against the armies of Mordor, War of the Ring is perfectly asymmetrical. It tells the story of Lord of the Rings like no other game could, let alone does, And as you move your hidden hobbits across the board, or on the flip side, try to find and destroy those hobbits, you feel like you're in the action of Tolkien's novels. Simply brilliant. As Anthony said, it's simply the best example of board gaming meeting theming. It's a masterpiece worthy of the great trilogy. It almost feels like Tolkien himself actually created this game. And that's why War of the Ring is our number six game. Our number five game is Defenders of the Realm, an amazingly deep cooperative game, kind of like Pandemic with a Dungeons and Dragons theme. It's probably the best co-op game out there if you have the time and patience to learn it. It's one of the only games that's ever had me jump up from my seat in excitement, and I did that on a losing roll. It was just that cool. This is one of the most fun games out there, definitely worth playing. We all love this Yeah, Defenders of the Realm is a co-op game for experts. So much of our time playing co-ops is introducing basic games to new players. We're always doing Pandemic, and we're always doing Forbidden Desert. And and there are just times when it gets so placid uh, that I I need an exciting, invigorating game of Defenders of the Realm. Um, Unlike Shadows Shadows Over Camelot, which is another expert-level co-op, There is absolutely no quarterbacking in Defenders of the Realm. That's what makes it so exciting and so engaging. Everybody has so much on their plate. They have their own characters to worry about. And yet it's essential that each of the characters work with everybody else. So, so much going on. You're in it all the way to the end. And I agree with Daniel. It's a game to make you stand up and cheer, even if you lose. That's our number five game, Defenders of the Realm. Number four, Blood Rage. 2015 was an incredible year for board games. Someone's going to argue with that. But there's really only one game from last year that deserves to be this high on our list, and that is Blood Rage. And you have to say it like that. That's a rule. Eric Lang refined a previous design here into what could only be described as Euro Clash, Euro Thrash, however you want to describe it. It is a perfect amalgamation of area control, dudes on a map, card drafting, tons of stuff thrown in here, and it all works perfectly together to create a game, plays in about 60 to 90 minutes, and has a ton of depth and strategy to it. From choosing the right cards on your turn, to knowing when to commit, and when to beef up your forces, this game is just so much fun to play, even if you get your butt whooped. One of the best games of 2015, and now one of the best games, for me, of all time. Well, Anthony already said it, Blood Rage. 
takes all the epic greatness of Rune Wars and boils it down into an easily manageable game session. I cannot say enough about the amazing miniatures in this game, other than they truly reflect the rage in their blood. It's an outstanding game. It plays well with everyone. You're going to love it. Our number four game, Blood Rage. Our number three game is Roll for the Galaxy. Probably the best dice placement game out there with a strong and dynamic tableau building mechanic. Roll for the Galaxy is just a ton of fun. It is one of the best games for bringing players to increasingly difficult and interesting strategic choices while maintaining an accessible set of rules. It is a great bargain for what it brings to the table and a great game for any occasion because, come on, who wouldn't want to throw a fistful of dice as they take over the galaxy? Yes, Race for the Galaxy is still a favorite of mine, but Roll for the Galaxy definitely ranks up there very high, too. Thomas Lehman actually co-designed this with Wei Hua Huang, who is a designer of dice. That's what makes this one of the best dice games. It's mechanically sound and always presenting you with interesting choices uh, of what dice to keep and which to use and which to save. Always engaging. It is definitely one of the best dice games ever made. Roll for the Galaxy is our number three. Our number two game is Seven Wonders, the game that brought us together and is still as engaging after all these years as the podcast it spawned and the friendship it created. Seven Wonders is a remarkably fun game and appropriate for both the novice and experienced gamers, with lots of options added by some expansion packs that you could just throw in whenever you want. It's apparently a great game and just a heck of a way to forge a lasting friendship. Seven Wonders plays great at so many different player counts. The leader expansion is best. But each expansion has the ability to add more without taking away from the beauty and speed of this game. It's brilliant through and through. Just be careful that you aren't blinded by science. That's why Seven Wonders is our number two game. And now, our number one game for BGA's top 100 games of all time. Caverna. After many years and many brilliant games... Uwe has created a nearly perfect worker placement game with Caverna. I especially like how he incorporated the extra layer of theme from the Farmers of the Moor expansion from Agricola. It's a modern day classic that charms everyone that sits at the table with it. It's insanely fiddly because there's so many different tiles you have to use and it takes some time to set up, but that really is part of the craftsmanship. Uwe Rosenberg playtests these games intensely and after creating caverna he's actually gone back to play test new editions of agricola that he's going to come out with later this year which will simplify and streamline i think a lot of people left agricola for caverna for that reason there are no cards in caverna there's just a number of different ways to build out your little farm slash mine ways to score points ways to win they keep you looking uh, it gives it keeps everybody in the game very engaging game for me. Yeah, I choose a lot of worker placement games for this list, but none of them really come close to the utter brilliance that is Caverna. Nearly to a letter, he fixes everything I found troublesome in Agricola, a game I don't necessarily like all that much, and yet crafted something wholly unique and utterly addictive. There's solo play all the way up to those epic three-hour sessions with three tables pulled together in a local coffee shop. This game really is near perfect for me, and it's it's one that... I wish hit the table more often, but when it does, it's a, <clears throat> it's an extraordinary experience. Yeah, Caverna might just be one of the most well-refined games on the market. It's one of those few games where it just 
everything flows together the way it's supposed to, right? There's almost no rough edges whatsoever. I think, you know, the common sentiment, the one that we've already said about three times now, right, is that it's sort of perfected Agricola, but it really is an amazing game. And it takes all the things that bothered me about Agricola, that bothered me about that type of game in general, and avoids them while being the kind of game that I normally wouldn't play, and yet I love it. And that is why Caverna is our number one. And now, our final round. Well, guys, we have just enough time left for a final round, because all of us, we contributed a top 50 list of games, and we had a lot of our own personal favorites that didn't make the group's top 100. So for our final round, what is the one game you wish had made our top 100? Your biggest regret. For me, it was Scotland Yard, another one of those classic older games that just replays so well. It's you probably listeners are probably more familiar with Letters from Whitechapel, but this is really more streamlined, more basic, and yet it plays the same way. Everybody's ganging up on Mr. X and trying to track him down. It's very tense. You've got to pay close attention. Um, and it still holds up well after all these years. I'd rather play that than Letters from Whitechapel. That's how much I enjoy it, and I sure wish you guys enjoyed it enough to put it on the list. Anthony, what's your biggest regret? Didn't make the list. <laughs> For me, it's, of all things, a trick-taking game. And really the only trick-taking game in my top 50, probably the only trick-taking game in my top 200, and that is Diamonds. This game is fantastic, and it really takes all the things that I have a problem with in this particular genre and makes it much more accessible. Always making interesting decisions. Every card you play does something for you in some way, whether you're winning the trick or not. And for me, that makes it just much more engaging for everybody at the table, but also just a lot of fun because you collect those little diamonds. You don't really know what everybody has behind their screen. It's just, it's a near perfect trick taking game for me. And I wish it had made the list as well. All right. Hey, Daniel, how about you? Well, for me, it's probably got to be Doomtown Reloaded. I understand why this game doesn't quite make the list in that it's it's hard to get to the table. It's got a lot of specialized language where you boot your dude at the deed and all these weird particular words that may or may not mean what you think they mean, as well as some pretty complicated rules. But it is, in my opinion, the best living card game out there. Truly fantastic. So I, I'm, I'm sorry to see that Doomtown Reloaded did not make the list. How about you, Chris? Well, my game got a little bit of love with Mysterium, but the game that I'm sorry that didn't make the list was Dixit Journey. Now, there are a lot of versions of Dixit out there, but Javier Colette's artwork is outstanding. Every card that you play in that game is a work of art that you want to frame. It's fun, interesting, engaging. It's the perfect party game for gamers. And when you do come up with the perfect clue for a card, you really feel like you succeeded there. I just love Dixit Journey. Well, you see, guys, doing a top 10 of top 10s left out a lot of good games. We should have had a top 104. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's always episode 104 for that, Drew, if you really want We will it. do it then. That is our final round for today. So there you go. BGA's top 100 games of all time on our episode 100. Now, one of the things that you won't know when you listen to this episode, is that there has been an amazing number of technical issues coming into creating this episode for you. But it has always been our sincere effort to bring you the highest quality board gaming podcast out there. And you probably know from listening for so many episodes 
that we usually do wrap up with having you join us at the table each and every week. And that is why we put so much passion and effort into each and every episode. It's not easy, and it's extremely rare for a board gaming podcast to get to an episode 100, but we couldn't have gotten it there without you. You really are one of us. You're a BGA at the table with us. So with that being said, please continue the conversation with us on Facebook. We really like to see your likes, and we love to have that conversation. Follow us on Twitter. There's always good content going out there. And the more we can connect to board gamers, the more we can expand the Board Gaming Anonymous family. Check us out on Board Game Geek. We have a guild there. We would love to see some great threads pop up there, maybe talking about episode 100, so that we can kind of get into it. What games did you feel were missing? What games were you surprised were on our top 100? Let us know over there in the guild. Of course, we have to thank our Patreon backers. Without them, we wouldn't have been able to get to episode 100. This podcast comes at a big expense of time and money, and we truly appreciate their support. And also, another way to support us is to rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. We're always trying to get the board gaming industry out to more and more people, and by you rating, we'll actually rank up higher and higher, and then maybe someone who's looking up for a podcast might say, hey, Board Gamers Anonymous, I, I like board games. I never really want anyone to know about that slight addiction that I have. Or people might think it's weird. Maybe I'll check them out. So please do rate us there. So with that said, until next time, this is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. And of course, everyone else who's joined us at the table each and every week including our guest hosts that really have come through and helped us with the podcast over these last many years. The Dice Tower Network, including Tom and Eric, that help us promote the podcast and help us grow the industry. And especially the designers, the production people, and the publishers of board games. We are so grateful for the great inventions and artistic creations that you've produced and we're so happy to be promoting this industry. Not to mention our friendly local game stores that help us find a place to play, even when it's not so convenient. And also those amazing people that keep thinking up new ways to make our games better with great new components and inserts. But especially you, our listeners, who join us each and every week and join us on BoardGamersAnonymous.com to see new content, our blog, our photos, and all of the information about the industry. Now, if only there was a game large enough to cover that kind of player count at the table. 